0: Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Stuart J. Hooper, who is a lecturer with both a master's in international politics and political science. He researches my favorite topics, the military-industrial complex, elites, war, and globalism. Welcome to Geopolitics Empire, Stuart.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. Great to be here and um, somewhat of a relatively new listener to your show. Um, but like you said, we've definitely got a very real connection here in terms of the topics that we think and research.
0: Yeah, I like what you've been doing on YouTube. You've been on my TNT program uh, a couple of times and you're really like researching uh, uh, the topics uh, that I enjoy, that many of us uh, enjoy, the elites, globalism and uh, where things are Headed and so today we'll be we'll getting we'll be getting your take on the power uh, elites you know the globalists however you want to call them uh, I guess you'll be giving kind of a broad uh, overview uh, from an academic point of view so
1: you know take it away awesome yeah so um, I come at this from somewhat of an academic perspective like you said working in academia and. Trying to do that can be tough, um, as I'm sure you and your audience are well aware. When you try to approach the topics of politics from this elitist angle, it can often just be immediately dismissed as conspiracy theory. However, the point that I would really like to get over today is that this is not a conspiracy. It's not even Based in the ideology of conspiracy, um, and it has a very legitimate background in the social sciences in particular. Um, so I thought the first thing that we could do is get into some of those assumptions. Um, so for particularly anyone that works in political science, in specifically American politics, there are a lot of assumptions that they use to understand the world. Um, and those assumptions really boil down to four key points. The first one is that the individual is supposed to be the ultimate seat of judgment. So, individuals are supposed to matter in democracies. Um, the question today, is that still the case? I will say in a second, probably not. Second assumption is that there is then a natural harmony of interests among people. Um, that. There's no one set of interests that is just so far more powerful than any other set. They're all equally weighted, and therefore all of the different interests in society have an equal opportunity of becoming dominant, of being represented in the government. Um, So environmentalism would be weighed equally with, say banking, um, just for two examples, right? Um, And just with that one, we know right away that that's not the case. Third assumption then is that, well, if we have individuals that matter, if all of them have equally weighted interests, well, then there would be a rational discussion between those different interest groups that would determine what to do. And that rational discussion, again, would be equally weighted. Everyone would have an equal voice in the debate. How much money you contribute to a political campaign would have no effect. right? That would not matter. What would only matter is that, coming to our fourth point, the right thing would be done. So whatever is true or whatever is right, we would be able to figure that out with this rational discussion between the equally weighted interests, and then we would act upon that, and that is what would prevail. Well, the work of C. Wright Mills in particular, and his text, The Power Elite, really calls this into question. And this whole set of assumptions, Mills says that the individual doesn't really exist anymore in the democratic world. And of course, he's talking specifically about the United States. And he says that society that was once based on individualism has been replaced by a society that is a mass. It's just a big blob of people. And the blob gets pushed around by certain interests that do outweigh others, that do have more power, that does have more prestige, that does have more influence. Um, So, all of those assumptions, therefore, fall apart. And one of the big ways that he tries to demonstrate this, um, this distinction between what a general public of individuals would look like versus what a mass would look like, gives us three points. The ratio of opinion givers to opinion receivers. So if you have only a very small number of people that give us their opinions, um, but a massive number of opinion receivers, well, then you're probably in a mass society. You have a group that's being pushed around by another, which far outweighs the level of influence of the individual. Second point, the possibility to answer back to opinions without reprisal. In other words, can you question the mainstream rhetoric, the mainstream argument, and can you do so in a way that's not going to get you punished, that's not going to get you, say, banned on Twitter, or banned from Facebook, or shadow banned, perhaps, or kicked off of PayPal, as I know your show has recently been. Um, So yeah, this is another point on Or do we have a public of individuals or do we have a mass? And then his final point here, um, the ease or lack thereof, of your opinion shaping a decision with powerful consequences. So do the opinions of individuals actually matter within a society? Meaning, do they have a real tangible influence on the direction that the society goes or do they not? Um, And if they don't, well, whose decisions do make powerful consequences? And that is ultimately Mill's overall argument, um, which we can get into more in a second. But um, his bottom line is essentially, unless you can make decisions that really have an impact on the direction the country goes, you don't really have power. Um, And he makes the point that just because you can vote that doesn't necessarily mean that you are making a powerful decision. And in fact, the, the final point I'll end on for this, um, this um, segment, he says that the only qualification that you need to be a member of this mass society is you just need to be a citizen and you need to be aged 18 or older. Because what does that mean? That means you can vote. Well, then the assumption is just automatically that you have influence, that you have power. Or Mills is saying, well, maybe that's not the case. Just because you can vote doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to change the direction that a society takes, even a society that claims to be a democracy. A message
0: from our sponsors. It seems we're headed for economic collapse, a dystopian social credit system, even another world war. As a longtime expat myself, I've secured multiple passports, getaway locations, foreign financial accounts, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. Mikhail Thorup of the Expat Money Show can help you do the same and become great reset proof. He's hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim your freedom in a time of upheaval and uncertainty by moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B safe haven, offshore banking, decentralized finance, second passports, and much more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy eating bug burgers in your smart city. If you do find yourself stuck in a smart city, the Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in English and Spanish, so hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless Society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And that's, I think that's where we are today. Voting largely doesn't matter because it seems all parties are
1: captured. So yeah, where do we go? Where do we go from there then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's personally how I also kind of got into this line of thoughts and this academic direction, is when I was growing up, obviously, throughout the war on terror, and then the financial crash, and the big parties, obviously, back in the United Kingdom, when I lived there, I now lived in the United States, the big parties were saying exactly the same thing on these very big issues, Foreign policy and economics, they were saying exactly the same thing. There was no clear distinction between um, these two um, supposedly different parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, the Labour Party and the Conservatives. Um, no difference at all in what they were saying on these very important issues that were completely changing our society and completely changing our world. So, yeah, this is what brought me into this line of thought and this um, particular um Way of analyzing the world. So, yeah, let's get into the other side of this. So, I alluded to a bit of what is going on then in terms of the elitist view of the world. Um, for Mills, it comes down to people that are in the economic, political, and military establishments. Um, and it's these institutions which give these people their power. And if you can rise to the very tip top of these institutions, um, well, then you have far more power than the average man on the street, because then you are going to be making decisions that do have those national or international consequences. Um, And what this means, and the point that he kind of makes, is that those hierarchies of state, of corporation, of the military, he says they constitute a means of power not before equaled in human history now mills is writing in the 1950s and of course he was uh, accurate then but i think this still applies to this very day and an important distinction that he makes is then that just because you're born to a certain family or you go to a certain university or you belong to a certain religion none of that stuff matters What really matters to have real power within this society, within the United States, is do you sit in one of those key power hierarchies? Are you a leader of a political, economic, or military center of power? If so, you can shape decisions that are far more important than, again, your everyday man on the street. Um, And he says, I think accurately, the ends of men are often merely hopes but means are facts within some men's control. And he gives a really excellent example of this. And he says that essentially when there are small groups of men that can literally turn the world into a thermonuclear wasteland overnight, they have a massive amount more power than everybody else in the society. Um, They have the power to enact consequences that far outweigh any other potential interest group that exists within that society.
0: Yeah, we've seen that throughout history in the 50s. uh, I think it was General MacArthur wanted to launch nukes against China. He was fired. Uh, Joint chiefs were telling JFK uh, launch nukes, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Look where JFK ended up, and so yes, mo- most definitely.
1: Yeah, so we could probably shift then into a discussion, particularly of this um, American situation and what has happened here, um, because of course America does sit ideologically in the mainstream view of the world as this. Icon of democracy, this icon of democratic values, of liberty, as we have in that poster behind you there. Um, But is that actually accurate? Have there not been times in American society where there have been elites that have emerged? And the answer to that is probably yes. Um, At the founding of the nation, there is somewhat of an elite. Um, The founders of the United States, these are men that come from a particular educational and administrative background um so the elites then are somewhat political um but it's um really a loose coalition of elites at the time of the founding. It's not really centralized and there is a degree of pluralism. Um, But today, that's certainly um, not the case. And it's really context which changes this. Um, And this begins really in 1886, when we get the Supreme Court ruling that the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the laws, that also applies to corporations. Um, So Mills looks at this And says that this is a key moment when we get a transfer of power from the political elites into the economic world. So you're giving corporations the same protections, the same rights as individuals, well then you are hurting the individual as a result of that in terms of the level of influence that they may have on a society. Um, And this is the era when corruption really starts to begin in the United States. Senators, judges, they just begin to be bought up as a result of this. Well, we're, we're a corporation and we can spend our money this way because it's, it's how we are constitutionally able to do so. The New Deal, of course, emerges in response to the Great Depression and somewhat begins to challenge that center of economic power in the United States, but it does not reverse the situation. It does not bring the power back into the government. It doesn't bring the power back to the people. Um, It somewhat levels it out. Um, It contests it a little, um, but it's not a complete replacement. Well, then, of course, what do we get? World War II. World War II is when we get the rise of a military elite, Um, a military class, again, thinking specifically within the United States that really does have those uh, capabilities to enact decisions that have far-reaching consequences, not just for the country, but for the world. And and of course, we see that with the deployment of the, the nuclear weapons in Japan. And then since then, what we get is that Well, if we have these three groups, a political elite, an economic elite, and a military elite, well, the context of our current political situation is what is going to determine which one of those groups rises to the top. So, occasionally, you'll see economic elites on top, occasionally political elites, occasionally military elites, and that's going to be determined by context. But ultimately, they all work together. And what are they working together to do? Maintain their own position of power. And that is really what emerges again after World War II, these three groups, the political, the economic, and the military, in this position that they have never had before, and they all then start to look out for one another. It's not a conspiracy. It's a group of people that were given a mass of power trying to keep hold of that power and the way they do that is by working together they become interchangeable throughout the three different groups so if you're working for a big bank or you can go and work in a government regulatory agency if you're working in a military corporation you can go and become the secretary of defense all this sort of stuff and then it becomes therefore a self-reinforcing clique of elites um again not a conspiracy not necessarily planning to take over the world any of this sort of stuff planning to maintain their own power yeah we had eisenhower
0: also describe them as the scientific technological uh uh elite uh, i'm i'm not afraid ever to use the term uh conspiracy uh, i i would I, you know argue maybe add that you know they do conspire uh mm-hmm
1: maybe on different occasions
0: but uh yeah yeah
1: yeah definitely and mills actually makes this point he says something along the lines of all of history is not a conspiracy but there are conspiracies within history And they come from these sorts of groups, these power elite groups that work to maintain their power. And yes, they absolutely do plot to maintain their power in some cases. It's not all done out in the open. It is done behind closed doors. There is secrecy involved. And this, of course, is very problematic for the um, democratic view of the world. Um, And this... Idea of elites also goes back far further than we probably have time to go into here. We go all the way back to ancient political thought. Not really my area of expertise. Um, But people like Caesar, for example, Julius Caesar, um, does talk about some of this stuff. And Caesar, of course, very much involved in the militaristic propagation of an empire. um, And does this through extensive campaigns through Gaul at the time. And he has two surviving texts. One of them is called The Conquest of Gaul, um, which I would highly recommend people uh, read, actually. Um, It's an interesting read, of course, how it's written and stuff like that. Um, But the points he makes and the things that he talks about, we can absolutely see parallels to today. So I look at all of this elite research and come at it from this perspective of, like you just mentioned, Eisenhower, military-industrial complex. Again, because I grew up in the war on terror, Um, the US, the UK, they've been at war for as long as I can remember, probably my whole life. Um, I wanted to figure out what's going on here um, and why is this happening? Um, Well, Caesar, when he is conducting all these campaigns, well, he is portrayed back home within Rome, within Italy, as this great nationalist leader. And he's doing this for the good of Italy, right? For the good of Rome. Um, Well, that sounds a lot like what we've had going on in the Western world um, for a significant period of decades at now this point. Um, And there's a really interesting quote within that particular text. And he says when he finally comes back from these campaigns marching all throughout Western Europe, he says the wealthy put on a great show, and the poor displayed their enthusiasm. What does this mean? It means that the whole of society is captured by this militaristic propagandizing environment to such a degree that it unifies the entire social structure of classes from the very top all the way to the bottom and we absolutely see this today um with anytime you mention um, the military in the united states right of course people from the very top to the very bottom of the social structure love the military um it's um, essentially to a degree worshipped in the united states and despite how it has been empirically used around the world, which we can get into a bit um, in a, in a second here. Um, but there's another um, interesting thinker worth briefly mentioning. Um, Nichelle's comes up with the iron law of oligarchy in political parties, <clears throat> and he has some very again interesting quotes on this sort of stuff. He says that the elites are always ready to justify despotic acts under the convenient pretext that they are done for the good of the Republic and in the general interest. So this must be done because this is for our own good. Um, and this, Michelle's gets into this really interesting analysis of how this worked during World War I um, and how it took social forces that should have been standing against the government and saying, hey, wait a second, do we want to do this? Do we want to go into World War One? Is this what we want to do? Do we want to create this mass international conflict those social forces were consumed by this nationalist rhetoric um, and by this whole idea that this is for the good of the world for the good of country overall and he says the german socialists who enthusiastically obeyed the mobilization orders issued by the emperor Believe themselves to be fulfilling a sacred duty, not only from a patriotic point of view, but also from the democratic, considering that they were hastening the day of their own final deliverance. So, even social forces that you would think traditionally would be against war will come out in favor of it if they think it's going to end up providing a benefit to their own particular political position. So, this is why. I'm standing so strongly against militarism as a policy option. Um, I do not believe in pacifism, so to speak. There is absolutely a legitimate right to self-defense against aggressors, and we should be able to do that. But we shouldn't be using military force to try to achieve our aims in the world. Um, Just look at anything that has just happened over the past couple of months, or again, the past couple of decades, and we can see that a military solution doesn't really tend to help.
0: Yeah, and um, I think, uh, you know, you're taking us through time and uh, as we get more current, um, I was, William Robinson was talking about this on my most recent podcast, you know, the, the phase of globalization kicks in and that, then we've, you know, now we're using the term uh, globalists, glo- uh, global uh, uh, elites, And just today, I saw George Galloway. Uh, I liked his comment that he posted on Twitter. He said, globalization is not some dewy-eyed internationalist dream. It's the homogenization of humanity for the purposes of crushing all of us under the iron heel of a monopoly capitalism where the world will be run by and for a handful of Western oligarchs enforced by the US uh, empire. Uh, I can't really disagree there. and it's interesting, this this uh, divide, you know, where I, I, I guess George is a, is a socialist and he, you know, he focuses on monopoly capitalism. Uh, conservatives will say, you know, it's a socialist or communist takeover. I don't view that really as important. I like how William Robinson, even though he's a socialist, I'm not. He puts it as a transnational, you know, ruling class, capitalist class. It's It's the people with all the money and the power, basically. I don't really mm-hmm. care about the isms. Um, And I've mentioned before, I do see an amalgamation of at times they seem socialist or communist, uh, monopoly, capitalist, technocrat, technocratic, globalist. uh, But it's basically just the concentration of finance, as you were outlining, you know, military, political and economic at the global level
1: versus uh, everyone else. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. So we see the. Yeah, today, well, we've gone through periods of time where national elites are what really mattered most. um, And that's, of course, the position that C. Wright Mills was talking about, um, the idea that America is dominated by these national elites. Um, But today, yes, the argument is that there are transnational elites, um, groups that exist above and beyond the nation state. Um, And they don't really care about national loyalties because they can take themselves and their power anywhere else in the world and exploit it somewhere else instead. So, yeah, this is a really interesting... Perspective and glad you were able to talk to um, Professor Robinson in your last episode. His argument, like you said, really is around this idea that these are capitalist elites and this is all um, comes down to economics primarily, right? What I try to add with what I'm doing is broadening this back out to include the military because a lot of um, more recent analysis of globalization in particular is ignored the military It's said that there are these um, transnational economic forces even transnational political forces the European Union for example but we have to consider that the military still exists and the argument of the transnational position is that the nation-state has been captured and is used and abused by transnational elites to meet their goals, to meet their ends. I'm arguing in my PhD work, well, okay, I agree, sounds good, but isn't the military also an element of those nation states that we're saying are captured by transnational elites? And the military is traditionally considered as a nationalist entity. It's considered to be something that is tied to individual states, works only for individual states. What I'm saying in my work is, well, if the nation state has been captured by transnational elites and the military is part of the nation state, well, then the transnational elites could perhaps also be using the military for their own aims. So, while, yes, we have an American military in name, does it actually operate for domestic nationalist goals for the United States? Or does it do something else? Does it instead open up the world to those transnational corporations? Um, Does it destroy political and ideological forces that do not align With globalization? And I think the answer to that is, of course, um, yes. And the focus that I take is also what Robinson looked at in his uh, book from a couple of years ago an exploration of military technologies, and specifically fourth industrial revolution technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, drones, robotics, algorithms, all this sort of stuff. How is that going to be exploited by militaries? To achieve the aims of transnational elites, um, and I think that is absolutely what is going on. Yeah, that really brings up brings us up um,
0: to uh, today at the cutting edge of, of this. You know, I think of Iraq, for example. Um, you know, maybe people like John Perkins we can think of where, mm-hmm. yeah, the, these transnational elites send in the American. Uh, military when there's a huge private mercenary aspect of that uh, as well uh, that, that form you know we've got u.s soldiers together with these uh, mercenaries which will william robinson talked about but yeah they destroy the nation and they make it safe then for these transnational corporations to come in make money and you know create a new system you know i i just discovered recently in azerbaijan after the war there, um, they are rebuilding it as a smart city, which is uh fascinating. And that's kind of what you're talking about now. They're recreating the destroy- destroying these locations and putting in now smart cities, which is basically you know the great reset, the fourth industrial revolution. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how we see these technologies and military force operationalized is also um different today. Um, It's no longer um, individual nations. It's instead institutions like NATO, like Five Eyes. Um, These are transnational entities which use and abuse military force for their own aims, for their own interests. Um, And of course, this is always couched in the logic and rhetoric of national security. Um, But my point is, well, does this ever really achieve national aims? Is it really in the national interest to be doing these sorts of things, to be conducting these wars? Um, Was it in the American national interest to go and bomb Libya, for example? How did that benefit the domestic population in the United States? Well, if it didn't, and it benefited someone else, well, that means the military is being used and abused By that, somebody else. And that, of course, is not good. And that's not what militaries um, should be doing. But yeah, in terms of these technologies, um, I argue that they are being used to justify really this continuation of a permanent war, of an endless uh, police state um, domestically um, and an endless situation of conquest on the international level. Well, we have to go and do this. We have to attack this place because if we don't, well, they're going to get this technology before us. They're going to use it against us. All, all of this sort of logic. Um, so, yeah, the idea that if the United States military waves the American flag, we have to kind of get out of our heads that that doesn't necessarily mean that what it's doing is for the United States. It might be being used for something else. It might be abused by someone else, by something else. Um, And again, there are some interesting historical comparisons that I use in my work to think through this idea of technology and how important it is Um, and we could return here to caesar again in the conquest of gaul Um, he talks about his use of military technologies and how they helped to turn the tide in his favor um, and how this then of course helped the roman empire and he's talking about siege towers And he says, when they saw the tower in motion approaching the fortress walls, the strange and unfamiliar spectacle frightened them into sending envoys to ask Caesar for peace. The envoys said they were forced to the conclusion that the Romans had divine aid in their warlike operations. This is precisely what is going on today. We have militaries around the world, nations around the world, claiming that we need to spend billions, trillions of dollars on all these new technologies because they're trying to sell them to their publics as divine aids, right? They're trying to say that, look at us, we have the best stuff. Um, We have the best capabilities. Therefore, follow us or else. Otherwise, you'll pay the price um, in in one way um, or another.
0: Yeah, whether they're uh, hypersonics or, or or whether they're even mm-hmm. possible uh at all uh you know a mm-hmm. lot of uh, there there are analysts who have said that all this great reset stuff that these guys are are projecting may not even be possible but they're scaring us into uh submission and sort of uh, attempting to disarm us um and i'm I'm guilty of being too pessimistic in that regard but uh yeah indeed we should um you know, keep, keep, keep resisting. Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And in terms of, um, the, the idea of total social control, yes, that's also going on with these technologies as well. And this is a point that I also make in my work, um, which will hopefully be published in an academic journal near you (laughs) in the coming months of slowly, but surely trying to get some of this stuff out there. Um, but yeah, I make the point, that this stuff, the, these technologies, they have to be sold to the domestic population in the idea that we are keeping you safe. This is for your national security. But when they are actually used, they are not used for that at all. They're used to it's instead achieve the aims of globalization, of elites, of this more transnational. Appearance, right? They're no longer concerned with um, their national loyalties. They're only concerned with um, transnationalism. Um, And Mills uses a term that I think is really useful here. He says that domestic populations are psychically raped by their governments into believing this vision of the military as being the best thing ever, as being in their interest as being out for national security, um, as looking out for the everyday man on the street. Um, And this, of course, is done through a very sophisticated um, propaganda campaign, which we've seen throughout really American history, but of course in overdrive in the post-World War II world. Um, And this is, of course, where a lot of this more critical perspective um, comes in um, as well. Um, But I would agree that it it is to a degree delusional to consider military forces, particularly in the Western world, as primarily concerned with their domestic populations. They are not. They have not been used that way in a very, very, very long time, um, probably since World War II, right? That probably is the last um, instance where you could say, yeah, there was a threat to um these, these nations and therefore they use their militaries to protect their nations um well that's not what military force is used for um, today um and another key point that i'm in my work is the foreign realm of analysis and the domestic realm these have to be considered together when it comes to this sort of military force and there are lots of examples of this i don't know if uh robinson would have mentioned this when you spoke with him but there are technologies that have been used and abused in places like iraq which have then found them their way onto the streets of the united states elrad sound cannons for example being a prime example of this um you got a riot of iraqi civilians upset that you've just i don't know whatever it is blown up their mosque blown up the water treatment facility. We'll blast them with this sound cannon, get them back into their houses, right? And get them away from what we're trying to do because they're in the way of our agenda. Exactly the same thing is going on in in the domestic United States. These technologies are now being brought home and used against American citizens to do exactly the same thing, to say you are standing up against our agenda that cannot stand go back, go away, go to your homes. We don't want you here. Um, you're in the way. Um, so yes, in terms of the, should we have a pessimistic or optimistic outlook for this stuff? I would kind of be with you in the pessimistic camp. I actually used to be a very, very, very optimistic person. And then I started reading more and more and more books on this stuff for my PhD. And all of a sudden, yeah, the, the penny starts to drop that we may perhaps have let this go a little too far there may not be too much turning back from this at this point um because just look at what is going on today it's not just these technologies like the sound cannons it's a complete command and control grid if it wants to be that cell phone tracking artificial intelligence facial recognition surveillance cameras autonomous weapons all of this sort of stuff. I think we may just be sitting and waiting for the right crisis to emerge or perhaps be created where the switch is flicked and all this stuff goes live, at which point resistance is going to be a serious problem. I
0: I feel exa- as, exactly as you just uh, put it uh, so eloquently, I'm just, when Skynet becomes self-aware i'm just waiting for that it just seems like we've all crossed the rubicon just like right now uh and as you mentioned before this is a unique moment in history i don't think we've had such power concentrated globally at this level ever in the history of the world uh and i'd also mention smedley butler who uh Mm -hmm. long time ago said that he was working for uh, chiquita banana and Pineapple, not for you know the U.S. government, but for these corporations mm-hmm. overthrowing um, foreign countries, you know, in Latin America, and so, yeah, basically the U.S. military is a mercenary force, uh, as is you know NATO's uh, military. I recall years ago flying into the U.S. Uh, and the plane lands, and it's you know time for everyone to stand up, get their luggage, and get off the plane, and there was a U.S. soldier in his uniform. Uh, walking and it's just amazing to experience this. It was literally worship. Like everyone else on the plane was like, Oh wow. They, they let him pass first. And it was literally like worship. I was watching them worship him. And I'm just thinking in my head, dude, you're going off to fight for the bankers. Like if I knew uh, as what you're saying, and I already understand how all of this operates, I would never join um, the military. I mean, Yes, we knew we do need people to defend the 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 the, the country, but I just can't square the two. Like I, I can never go fight out fight in Iraq because I'm not fighting to defend my my country. You know, there mm-hmm. will be people that disagree. I I've met soldiers who went off to fight the war and then later they came back this illusion and they understand what it's really about and they will speak this way
1: now. But
0: yeah, so. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it was Albert Einstein who said, the pioneers of a warless world are the youth that refuse military service. And this, I think, is kind of uh, the question of solution and where the responsibility for that solution lies. And I think it does ultimately have to be with us. Um, We have to make a change in how we think and understand the world to operationalize these changes and to shift what our militaries do um, into a better direction. Because, yes, if these militaries were just defending their national borders, their national waters, great. No problem at all, right? If you want to do um, things to stop piracy, stuff like that, within your national waters, great. But that's not what they're being used for. They're not being used to secure their own borders. They're not being used to secure their own waters. They're being used and abused around the world, clearly for aims that are not related to national security on any conceivable level. And it might be too late, uh, as you said before,
0: because uh, they might not need soldiers anymore. With the, mm. uh, I mean, if if people just go and research the drones, the drone swarms, um, the autonomous tanks and and jeeps and all sorts of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, soon you know they might not not need soldiers anymore, and so you won't be able to even to be a pacifist. I mean, they're just gonna send out the the cyborg mm-hmm. terminators uh after us or to control
1: us. So yeah, any any other or, or final thoughts for us? I think that's probably a good final one to end on. And this is something that has come up in some of my stuff and some of the, I've had exactly the same thoughts. If we do not shift how our military is working and operating today with people, there's going to come a time in the not so distant future where that's not going to be the case. And for anyone that doubts this idea that militaries are going to be dominated by robots and drones. Just go and look at a video of the Boston Dynamics robots. They have humanoid robots, dog robots. The dogs used to be super impressive, but now they have a humanoid robot that can do backflips, front flips, it can pick itself up, all this sort of stuff. It's only a matter of time before that's what all of our militaries look like. And like I've said, that's not just going to be deployed against some people in some faraway land that you may be able to justify in your head, well, maybe they're harboring terrorists or whatever, so they deserve it. Well, as long as you maintain that worldview, when the robots come home, when they come home to roost, which they will, and they already are being used. We saw the surveillance dog that the New York Police Department deployed during COVID, um, which was rescinded because they had so much backlash. But that's just the start. And they are going to go ahead with this stuff unless we stand up and resist it in some way. Um, How we do that, not necessarily sure I have an answer there. Um, But in terms of leaving at least a nugget of hope for the audience, I would say just get involved at the very least. Pay attention to these issues. Start to educate yourself on Um, a point I made on your TNT show last time I was on there. Don't feel like you have to understand everything either. Um, if you really care about the Federal Reserve, just only care about the Federal Reserve. Don't worry about COVID or anything else, right? Just look at the Federal Reserve. If that's your thing. Make it your thing. Then if we can develop a network of experts in all of these different little issues, well, then we will have an overall platform to perhaps do something um, to change um, this this uh, system that we're currently experiencing in a not so great fashion. Yeah, we just
0: add, you know, it seems like we're headed toward Elysium with Matt Damon, mm-hmm. you know, where uh, you've got those robot police uh, pushing mm-hmm. him around uh, and you can't argue with them. It's just uh, or, you know, Terminator, basically. Mm-hmm. I really feel like that is the end game and they've projected th- th- that those were have been th- their intentions, just like, you know, we had H.G. Wells use literature mm-hmm. to project their plans. Uh, and Aldo Huxley and George Orwell, uh, we've got these films now also projecting The plans that these elites have uh and we're just gonna have to see how all of this uh turns out um the best places to find you i believe are on twitter
1: and uh, facebook yes and youtube as well yeah i'm trying to get a channel up and running and off the ground turning out to be a little bit tough to get views but uh any new subscribers would be welcomed with open arms it's COVID-1984
0: uh, era, so basically they're mm-hmm. killing channels left uh, and right. But, I mean, keep fighting the good fight and, and see what happens. Well, thank you, uh, Stuart J. Hooper, for um, chatting with us. And again, everyone, follow find him on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and YouTube. And maybe, you know, you'll branch out to some of the alternative media uh, as well. And thanks for being on Geopolitics Empire. Yeah, thank you very much for the invite.